You're listening to a sermon from Lakeview Baptist Church. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, it is a a great privilege uh, to be here in this amazing church. Uh, I love this church. Uh, When I was in college, um, or rather when I was graduating high school, Somebody said, hey, the first Sunday you go to college, you go to church, and while you're sitting there in the worship service at that church service, you need to make a commitment that you'll be in church every Sunday while you're in college. And so the first Sunday, August of 2000, the year 2000, my freshman year at Auburn, I sat right over there and in the time of prayer, committed that I would gather with the saints, that I would be in a worshiping community every Sunday. And there was a lot of, I was a Fiji pledge that semester. There was a lot of late nights. I had to sneak in in the back, but uh, I was either here. I eventually joined First Baptist Opelika, but loved this church and worshiped here many times in college. And I'm just so grateful for, you know, a moment that I had with the Lord just right over there. So it's very special to be in this room. So grateful for your current pastor. As he mentioned, we've been friends a long time and just love him. So grateful that God brought him uh, to this church. Uh, He is an incredibly gifted man, as you know, and and just a humble follower of our Lord. And for a national champion at the University of Alabama to say War Eagle so easily is truly a work of the Holy Spirit. So... (laughs) Uh, so grateful for you, Brian. I'm so grateful for your former pastor and, and uh, uh, Brother Al. And, and uh, as Brian just mentioned, I, I'm, you know, so much of what all of us that are trying to be faithful as pastors or modeling is what we learn from, from guys like Brother Al and trying to raise up pastors and trying to be faithful in that calling of God on our church. And uh, I just so respect so many of the pastors that you have sent out. Uh, some of my dear friends in ministry were trained right here in this congregation. So I love this church. It's a, it's a deep honor to be here today. I asked Brian what I should preach on. He said, well, anything but John and Genesis. So <laughs> turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is a, a passage that became near and dear to my heart, even when I was a college student, so it feels appropriate to think about it with all of you today. I just want to read verse 16 through 21, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21. So the Apostle Paul, he, he wrote these words, obviously in a letter to the church of Corinth, but he writes them under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore, these words come to us today as if our Lord himself were teaching to us. So let's hear together the word of our Lord. From 2 Corinthians 5, 16 to 21. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, but entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. 
Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Because for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, three things that I want to think about with you in this passage today. First, seeing the world differently. Second, our need for reconciliation. And finally, the way to reconciliation. So let's think about seeing the world differently. One of the things that struck me about this text and, and something that I think it's, it's very hard for us to really get for the coin to drop, the, the gospel calls us to see the world through an entirely different lens, to see the world differently. When I was in high school, uh, my senior year of high school, I got to be a part of this leadership program. I was raised in Huntsville, Alabama, and it was this leadership program, and they took us to all of these different places in the city. Uh, they took us to the city government, and they took us to businesses in the city, just kind of showing us what a good civic life would was like. And, and uh, the most um, interesting stop that we had in that time was they took us to they had this training with the police force, the Huntsville Police Department. And, you know, I'm sure they said, we got a bunch of 17-year-olds coming here. What are you going to do, police officers? And the policemen really, they did something super cool. What they did is they set up this training where we had to, we're little high school students, put on these thermal goggles and go into this pitch dark room and try to find the bad guy, you know. And of course, 17-year-old is very confident. I said, man, this is my time to shine. I'm going to go in there and show that I'm destined to be a secret agent. And so... I put these thermal goggles on. Now, in the, in the room, there was a, a trained police officer who was hiding. He was pretending to be the bad guy. And we had these real, like, paintball handguns. And so, of course, I go in there very confident with my little paintball handgun. And 30 seconds into it, got these thermal goggles on. I don't know if you've ever worn thermal goggles, but, you know, you can only see what is, what, what is putting forth heat. And uh, I go in there, and within 30 seconds, bang, bang, the police officer that was hiding shoots me twice. I'm dead. The whole activity's over. And all my, you know, dreams of secret agency were gone. But I couldn't get used to seeing the world differently. I, I'd never looked through thermal goggles before. I, I, I was totally disoriented. I was totally confused. And so I couldn't see, I never really figured out what I was looking at. In, in a different way, but in a similar way, this is what this passage is calling us to. This is what the gospel calls us to, 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 to see the world differently. Notice how the passage begins. We regard no one according to the flesh. We regard, as Christians, we, we don't see the world according to the flesh. Now, that's very challenging for us because we live in a world that trains us to regard everyone according to the flesh. I mean, think about when you meet somebody, you know, some of it's being friendly and making social connections, but some of it's kind of measuring one another. Where'd you go to school? What do you do? Oh, you went to this school. <laughs> oh, you do that. Oh, you live there. Oh, well, you're worth my time. You're an interesting person. You're someone that I should be impressed with. We, we don't do this consciously, obviously. 
But subconsciously, the world teaches us to regard one another according to the flesh. What Paul is saying here, what scripture tells us is there's actually a more important dynamic to your life than who you are as a fleshly person, who you are on the outside. And it's who you are on the inside. It's your spiritual life. It's your inner life. We regard no one according to the flesh. What's really important is a person's spiritual life. Jonathan Edwards, when um, he's a famous American pastor, theologian, when he first went to his church in New Hampton, uh, Massachusetts, he, he said that it was a congregation full of people that had the look of Christians. They dutifully went to church. They sang hymns. They read their Bibles. He said they had kind of a rote orthodoxy. They knew doctrine. But he said this, listen, he said their ultimate concerns were not God and his kingdom, but land, getting more land, and the pursuit of affluence. Their children were given to night walking and tavern hunting. They, they just wanted to get rich. They just wanted to have a good time. That was their ultimate aspiration. They had the appearance of godliness. They knew doctrine, but God was not their delight. Is God your delight? You know, as, as J.C. Ryle said that the end of our life would be the delight of the Lord. Is that, is that who we are? That God is our delight, the end of our life. The, the highest purpose of our life is to delight in the Lord, to find our identity, our whole being in the Lord. These people of Northampton that Edwards was ministering to, they had no inner life. They had no spiritual life. That They had a religious life. They had a church life, but no inner life. And so as Edwards took to preaching and the spirit of God began to come alive in their hearts, he said this, as the Holy Spirit began to open the eyes of their hearts and illumine theological concepts. This is so interesting. Listen, listen to this. I want you to get this. The opaque orthodoxy of the laity, of the people, suddenly became a transparent medium for vision through which they saw the glory of God. Do you see what he's saying there? So before it was just opaque orthodoxy. It was a Bible story. It was a doctrine. It was something that we read in scripture, right? It was a book of the Bible. It was opaque orthodoxy. It was something solid that you just looked at. But he said, all of a sudden, the spirit of God came alive in their hearts. And all of a sudden, those opaque things became transparent things. They became the very things that the people began to look through to see the glory of God. You see what he's saying here? The doctrine came alive to them. The stories of scripture came alive to them. The, the passages of scripture came alive to them. And they, they all of a sudden went from something they looked at to something to look through, to see the glory of God, to understand life, to understand who they actually were. He said a stirring of interest began in the young people as suddenly as suddenly they, the, the, the realities behind the God talk of the minister came alive to them, right? It wasn't just God talk. It wasn't just preacher talk. It wasn't just stuff that, you know, Brother Brian says. It was, no, it was, it was the Lord speaking to them. Instead of then this spread to their parents, the gravity of covetousness that had drawn their hearts to earthly concerns was reversed and merchants began to neglect their nosiness to talk about God and their souls. 
The outer life, the life of the flesh, listen, became smaller and smaller and smaller. The inner life, the spiritual life became bigger and bigger and bigger. Do you have a spiritual life? Do you regard yourself fundamentally as a spiritual being? Do you regard others fundamentally as spiritual being? And here's the deal. The more you regard yourself according to the flesh, the more you'll regard others according to the flesh. The more you see yourself as I'm the graduate of so-and-so, I'm the owner of such-and-such, I have this much wealth, I have, I have all of these fleshly things going for you. The more you see your life according to the flesh, the more you'll see, well, this person has this and this person has that and I can use them for this and I can use this for that. But when the opaque orthodoxy of scripture, of God's word, becomes this transparent medium through which you begin to see the glory of God, you start to see who you really are and who they really are, are not just fleshly beings, but spiritual beings. C.S. Lewis writes in his classic book, The Weight of Glory, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, of spiritual beings is what he's saying. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to may one day in light of God's glory be a creature which if you saw it now, you'd strongly be tempted to worship. Or else separated from God, a horror and a corruption. So now as if you meet at all only in a nightmare. You see what Lewis is saying? He's saying we don't see people rightly. We just see people according to the flesh, people that we can use to advance our fleshly agendas. But when the spirit of God comes alive in our heights, we, we, no, we no longer regard one another according to the flesh. We see that fundamentally and primarily we are spiritual beings and we're either helping one another move closer and closer and closer to the things of God or further and further away. We regard no one according to to the flesh, who we are spiritually, who we are spiritually is who we are ultimately. That's the most important thing about us. And so I think that's a great place to stop and think, okay, do I regard myself and these people around me and the people I interact with all the time according to the flesh or according to the spirit? What is my true identity? We regard no one according to the flesh. And that brings us to the second point, our need for reconciliation. When we start to see ourselves fundamentally as spiritual beings made for God's glory, made for a relationship with God, well, that changes the whole way we measure ourselves. That changes the whole way we see what is valuable in the world. Edwards wrote of his church and about the work of the Holy Spirit. He says, the illumination of heart, this is so interesting, the illumination of heart, which brought converts in touch with the reality of God. So, right, so now, remember, they're seeing not just opaque orthodoxy, but a transparent medium. They're seeing God's glory. It brought them in touch with the reality of God. It simultaneously revealed to them how deeply sin gripped their own lives. They suddenly became aware. Now, this is, this is interesting. They suddenly became aware that their problem was not isolated acts of conscious disobedience to God, but a deep aversion to God at the root of their personalities, an aversion that left them in unconscious bondage to unbelief, selfishness, jealousy, and other underlying complexes of sin. You see what he's saying here? He's saying when they started to develop an inner life, a spiritual life, 
They realized that their sin problem wasn't just isolated acts of conscious disobedience, isolated conscious outward acts of disobedience to God. They realized that wasn't their problem. But before you have a spiritual life, that's the way you think of sin, isn't it? It's an isolated act of conscious disobedience. What is my sin problem? I lied that one time. I stole. I, I lost my temper. Right? These are my sins. These are my sins. I can, they're my outward conscious acts of disobedience to God. Here they are. Now, if that's the case, if that really is the case of our souls, then a system of penance actually seems very sufficient and makes a lot of sense, right? I stole, okay, well, pay back what you stole and maybe give a little extra, right? I lied, okay, well, go tell the truth to that person, make that situation right and go do a little something kind for that person. If, if, all our, sin, if our sin problem is only conscious acts of outward disobedience, I lied that one time, I stole, a system of penance could cover it. But what Edwards is saying is when you develop a spiritual life, when the Holy Spirit begins to reveal what your heart is really like, he says they suddenly became aware their problem was not isolated acts of conscious disobedience to God, but a deep aversion to God at the root of their personalities, an aversion which left them in unconscious bondage to unbelief, selfishness, jealousy, and other underlying complexes of sin. So unbelief, why am I always challenging God? Why do I always doubt his word. Selfishness. Why am I so self-centered? Why do I always need praise? Right. Jealousy. Why can I only celebrate others when I am being celebrated? Why am I so prone to pulling one another, others down? I love the phrase, other underlying complexes of sin. Why am I so greedy? Why am I so lustful? Why isn't my heart so pure? When you regard yourself according to the flesh, you don't have these thoughts. Sin is isolated. It's these conscious acts of disobedience. But when you come into an environment like this, a worshiping environment where these opaque orthodoxies become transparent mediums and you start to see the glory of God and you start to see the reality of yourself, oh, you, you begin to realize, well, my problem with sin is bigger than I thought. You know, a few years ago, there was a data breach at the webpage, Ashley Madison, it was a, it was like a, it was a shameful thing. It was a dating app for married people that were looking to have an affair. Shameful thing, but there was this data breach. And so all of these people that had wandered off into this secret sin pattern that they thought was secure, all of a sudden all their names were put out everywhere on the internet. Their secret sin was known. You could say it this way who they really were became public. Who they really were became public. You know, the Bible says in Hebrews four that God knows and judges the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Now that's a, that's a pretty weighty statement. God knows everything that's going on in your heart. He knows everything you've done, right? What if everything you've ever done was known? But he doesn't just know what you've done. He knows your thoughts. What every thought you've ever had <laughs> was known. That's who you really are, though. And then, and then the, the one that gets me to is intentions. 
You know, there's sometimes where I do something and it seems like I'm doing something nice and people say, oh, he's such a nice guy, but really I'm doing it so people will say, oh, look at him, he's such a nice guy. God judges, he knows your, your deeds, your thoughts, all of your intentions. If all of that was known, if all of that was you know, put up on these screens right now for all of us to know who here would stand in boldness as a righteous man or woman. The truth is we'd be crawling under our chairs. <laughs> our sin wouldn't just be these isolated acts of conscious disobedience. No, we would realize that, you know what, my, I, my, my heart is far from God. I am in need of some kind of change, of some kind of reconciliation, of some kind of savior. You know, oftentimes the people that have the highest view of their own righteousness are the people who are farthest away from God. And the ones that have the lowest view are are actually the ones that are moving toward reconciliation. Which brings me to the third point, the way of reconciliation. You know, to be separated from God is a terrifying place to be. There's no peace apart from God. There's only anxiety. And and the reason is, is we have, we are born with, because we are made in God's image, because we are made for God, we are born with this sense that we have to justify ourselves before God, but we never can. And so we go out and we try and we work and we do something to give ourselves this sense of righteousness, this sense of justice and And it never comes. You know, it's interesting when you think about the justice of God. I've often said that the justice of God is simultaneously the most comforting and most terrifying thought you could ever have. The justice of God is simultaneously the most comforting thought you could ever have and the most terrifying thought you could ever have. It's comforting. You know, I've been thinking a lot about the whole situation right now in Israel with Hamas, and and I'm not here to talk about that whole situation, but everybody's talking about that situation. And there's this sense, you know, however you're talking about it, however you're thinking about it, that, man, something wrong has happened, and there needs to be justice. We, We need some way, somehow, to settle this wrongdoing that is going on. But of course, no human justice is perfect. (laughs) It can only be a little more just, a little more whole than it was before. But we all long for justice. We, We all long for a world that is set right. And the comforting truth about a just God is that he will make all things right. You know, I, I can say to you today, if, if you are experiencing right now a deep wound, a deep injustice, a deep hurt, a deep pain. Look, I, I don't know all your situations, but I can say to you with great confidence that God in his timing and his providence will settle that account. His justice is perfect. The wrongdoer will not go unpunished. The justice of God is it's comforting. You know, I've also said, if you've never gone to the justice of God for comfort, you've lived an incredibly privileged life. But if you've actually experienced injustice and hurt, then, then you start to think of, about the justice of God in this incredibly comforting way. It is comforting. God will settle accounts. God will make all things right. It's a comforting thought, but it's simultaneously <laughs> a terrifying thought. 
It's a comforting thought as it relates to the injustices that we experience, the injustices of others. It's a terrifying thought as it relates to the injustices that we ourselves are guilty of. It's a thought that's deeply unsettling, <laughs> except for this, except for what I just read, except for verses like verse 19, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world, the broken, fallen, and sinful world. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against us. In Christ, through Christ, people like us, with selfish and broken hearts, with all the complexes of sin, people like us could be reconciled to God, could be forgiven of our sins and reconciled into relationship with God. Verse 19 is an amazing, incredible, and life-giving verse. It's the reason that when we, the choir was singing that song earlier, so many of you stood up because you, you understand verse 19, that in Christ... God has reconciled a broken person like you to himself that you can know and have fellowship with God. The question becomes how? How does God do that? How does God maintain his perfect justice and at the same time reconcile sinners like us to himself? You know, if you've read much of the Old Testament, there's this refrain it, it, it kind of haunts the Old Testament. It appears in every type of literature. It, it appears in the narrative. It appears in prophets. It appears in, in Psalms. It appears all over the place. You know, I, I've said if I ever write a play called the Old Testament, you know, I just want to have a guy that <laughs> every once in a while comes on stage and just says this refrain. Because it's everywhere. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. And, you know, we first see it in Exodus. It says, the Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression of sins. Okay, amazing. God is merciful and gracious. But then it says this, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This, this refrain appears over and over in the Old Testament. And again, the question becomes, how is this going to be resolved? How could God, on the one hand, be merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding steadfast love and faithfulness, but on the other hand, by no means clear the guilty? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. How is the perfect justice of God and the mercy of God on display at the same time? If you've read the Old Testament, you come to the end of it, and that should be your question. How is this going to be reconciled? How is the perfect justice of God and the mercy of God going to be reconciled, going to be put together at the same time? And the answer to that question is the greatest act of love that there has ever been that we see described right here in this passage in verse 21, for our sake, for our sake, 
because God loved us, because God loved sinners like you and me who we should have put out for our sake, because of God's love toward his people, he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin God's reconciling plan, his justifying plan was to send his son, the second person of the Trinity, fully God. He sent him to become fully man. God sent his own son, fully God and fully man. And Jesus, when he came and lived, he lived out righteousness. You know, the heart of Christ was always pure. <laughs> if you peeked into the dark places of any of our hearts, you would find things that all of us are ashamed of. If you peeked into the hidden places of Jesus' heart, you know what you would find? Only purity and righteousness and fellowship with his father all the time. There's nothing that would have been caused him embarrassment. There's nothing that would have caused him shame. He had perfect love, perfect fellowship with the father. You know, I love to think about this. Yeah, we, we got to stay with Coach Maddox last night and he knows my dad and I have a great dad and I love being his son. And this idea of delight, I feel from him. I, I have experienced what it means to have a father who delights in you. And now I get to be a dad of these precious children and I'm experiencing what that means as a father to delight in my children. I love them. I know what it feels like to, to receive the delight of a father. I, I know what it feels like to, to delight in my children. This is who Jesus was. He, was. he was, the father delighted in him. He received the father's delight. He delighted in his father. There was perfect communion between Jesus, father and son. Yet for our sake, he who knew no sin who was in perfect relationship with his father, he who knew no sin became sin. Have you ever really thought about this? The juxtaposition of that, how harsh it is. The one who was totally pure. I mean, think about the most innocent child in this room right now. All of a sudden having the heart of the evilest murderer Think about the purest heart all of a sudden being, taking on the record, being, becoming sin, becoming that of the most perverse person, the, the, the most deceitful person, all of the, the, the record of sin, the, the guilt of sin, the shame of sin. He who knew no sin became our sin. Sin had never touched him. Yet for our sake, he became sin. Jesus, who was only innocent, was only pure, took on the sin of the worst criminal, the coldest murderer, the most perverse person. The, the, the scripture, it, it, almost, it gives us so many word pictures. It's almost as if it's struggling to describe this to us. Second Corinthians says, you know, though he was rich, he became poor. First Peter says, you know, though, though he was totally innocent, he became guilty. John talks about light and darkness. And of course, Paul in Galatians, he talks about the curse motif. The one who was only blessed, who only had the blessing of his father became the curse. Jesus, who only knew blessing became a curse. So that those of us who deserve the curse, who deserve judgment, could be blessed in him. 
so that those of us who were in darkness could receive light in him, so that those of us who were poor could be rich in him, so that those of us who were guilty could be innocent in him. Don't you see on the cross, our record of sin was given to Jesus. And through faith, his record of righteousness is given to you. The father willingly put forward his son, his beloved son, as a sacrifice for you to pay the price of your sin so that you might be reconciled to God. It's the greatest act of love that has ever been. You know how you know when somebody loves you? There's some college folks in here, you're falling in love, love's awesome. But you know how you really know love? You know how you know really loves you? You know what kind of friends really love you? It's the one who runs in when everyone else is running out. It's the one who runs in when you're not being celebrated. You see, real love, love is known by its cost. Love is known by its cost. What does it cost them to love you? That, that's how you know someone loves you. They're, they're willing to sacrifice for you. They're, they're willing to give. They're willing to be embarrassed. They're willing to be dragged down. They're, they're willing to be put out because they love you. That's how you know someone loves you. And I just want you to hear this. There's never been a love like this. There's never been a cost like this. There's never been a sacrifice like this. Jesus, because he loves you, was willing to be put out from God, to yell out to his father who had only known perfect fellowship with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the father who only delighted in his son for our sake was willing to put forward his son. The, the heavenly father who loved his son perfectly was willing to put his son forward so that he could be reconciled to us. Don't you see? Don't you see how deep this is? Don't you see how deep the father's love for you is? Let me just tell you, I love this church. I'm grateful for this church, but I wouldn't scratch one of my children for one of you. Yet our heavenly father loved you and loved me so deeply that he would put his own son underneath all of your sin, all of your shame, the, the hidden parts of your heart. And Jesus loved you so deeply that he would willingly endure that price going to the cross. He proves his love for you in the cost of his love for you in the sacrifice of his love for you. And, and like you, here's what saving faith is. And I want you to get this. It's to believe that the very God who should put you out, the very God who you sinned against has loved you like this and to go to him. That's what saving faith is. It's to go to nothing else, right? We're tempted to go to something else. We realize we've sinned against God. And so we say, okay, well, let me go to work and make a million dollars. Or let me go to Sunday school and get a big treasure trove of righteousness. Or let me go give to the poor. No, no, no. Saving faith is this. It's to go to the very God who you sinned against, who should put you out, trusting that in Christ, he has shown you immeasurable love. Trusting that in Christ, he has shown you immeasurable forgiveness. That's what saving faith is. And it's hard for Western individual people like us. You know, I've said this before, grace is actually one of the stumbling blocks of Christianity. We don't want grace. We want to be able to say, I did this, I did that. I 
I earn this. But saving faith is this. It's, it's, it's turning to the love that God has demonstrated in Christ Jesus toward you. That's why the text says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. This, this will totally change you. If you really believe that you've been loved like this, that God has done such a reconciling work in your life, if you really believed this, then the things of the flesh that we measure ourselves by would be so small, they'd be so silly. You'd say, what does it matter that I'm the president of this silly little company? I know God. Well, what does it matter that I have this money hidden in a bank account somewhere? I know God and God loves me. And God has reconciled me to himself through Jesus. All of the, the small and silly things of the flesh would become so small. We could say with Paul, whatever gain I have, I count as loss for the sake of Jesus. And indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Have you believed this? Do you have a saving faith? You turn to the very God that, that should put you out, that should condemn you and recognize his love demonstrated towards you for our sake, for your sake. Jesus who knew no sin became sin so that you and him might become the very righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Father, may we believe this. <laughs> may we see this. May this be true of us. May the spiritual, our spiritual life become big. Our fleshly life become small. Father, help us to rest in Jesus. To rest in this greatest act of love that has ever been. And to realize in Christ, we are called sons and daughters of God. We are, we are the righteousness of God. Father, penetrate this into our hearts today. We've sung it. We've prayed it. It's been preached. I pray, Father, now we'd live it. Help us to respond in faith, Father. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.